This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 104. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's topic, what to do about incomplete answers caused by interrupting examiners. Hey, everybody. I hope you're doing great, as always. For me, I'm on the road for a week in beautiful Charlotte, North Carolina. And if you're familiar with the area, you'll know what I mean when I say that Biscuitville has become my new favorite breakfast spot. All right, in this episode, I want to touch briefly on the predicament caused by examining lawyers who interrupt your deponents in the middle of an answer. It's a common problem, but it has serious consequences because your deponents aren't going to be able to get credit for a full answer if they can't get that full answer out. So today, after I outline how and why these interruptions happen, I'll talk about what courts say about the use of errata sheets to complete those interrupted answers, and how best to handle an interrupting examiner while the deposition is still in progress. The key to success here when defending a deposition being conducted by a lawyer who's engaging in regular interruptions of a deponent's answers is really knowing the contours of the playing field for this specific issue. And that means knowing three things. First, knowing the applicable rule of procedure in your jurisdiction on errata sheets. If, for whatever reason, you wind up with a transcript where your client was not able to complete multiple responses due to the examining lawyer's interruptions. And that includes knowing not only the language of the rule, but also the drafter's intent as to the meaning of the rule, if that information is available. For example, the ARCE case in the show notes, A-R-C-E, discusses the history of the federal rule and suggests there, based on its own research, that it was indeed intended to limit changes to essentially clerical or typographical mistakes. The second thing to know is what the appellate courts in your jurisdiction say about whether you can make substantive changes to sworn testimony in an errata. Some appellate courts interpret the applicable rule exactly as written, but some don't. The federal rule on errata sheets, which is Rule of Civil Procedure 30E1B, does not, on its face, limit you to typographical corrections only. In fact, it expressly contemplates substantive changes, saying, as it does, that the deponent, upon request before the deposition ends, may request the opportunity to review the transcript and, quote, if there are changes in form or substance, close quote, may complete the errata sheet and explain the reasons for those changes. Now, some federal appeals courts, despite that language, have forbidden changes to substance in an errata. So if you're in a jurisdiction where your appeals courts don't allow that, then obviously you've got to act while the deposition is in progress. And I'll offer some practice tips in a moment on how to do that. Third, as part of the landscape, as I just alluded to, you have to know how to correct this problem on the fly during the deposition. Even if your jurisdiction allows you to supplement answers by way of errata, I nonetheless strongly recommend that you first try to resolve this issue while the deposition is underway. And I would respectfully discourage you from relying on an errata sheet because of the ever-present uncertainty about how courts will receive it. Even in jurisdictions that allow them, allow you to add substantive testimony in an errata, judges just don't like it. The entire deposition process is, of course, built around the basic notion that that's where witnesses are going to tell their story and that once the deposition closes, the story's been told and doesn't continue to vary 
grow, shrink, or modify in a never-ending series of errata sheets and affidavits. So do your testimonial repairs whenever possible during the deposition itself. That's the best place to fix those scratches and dents in the testimony. All right, let's jump right into how and why these interruptions happen. Sometimes this headache is just a byproduct of an impatient or maybe overly aggressive questioner. Sometimes it's annoyance caused by the examiner's perception or misperception that the witness isn't answering the question asked. Footnote, of course, if the answer is non-responsive, the examiner can and should move to strike the non-responsive answer and repeat the question. But interrupting the answer isn't one of the available options. Now, sometimes deponents are interrupted because of their own natural speaking style. I'm sure you've seen this in a measured, deliberate way with pauses for reflection that almost invite interruptions, even if the interruptions are in good faith. And finally, maybe the examining lawyer just senses that your deponent is about to drop a bombshell and wants to redirect or misdirect the deponent to another question before they can finish their response. And there are different kinds of interruptions. One is when the examining lawyer halts an answer mid-sentence. Question, what did you tell Tiffany? I said I couldn't attend the meeting, and I said, well, wait, what meeting? Another kind of interruption occurs when the examining lawyer asks your witness to provide a multi-part answer and then blurts out another question immediately after your client finishes the first part. Question, tell me the name of every person you claim was negligent. Answer, let's see. Well, first I'd say Randy Jones. Well, stop there. Let me ask you about Mr. Jones. And of course, the examining lawyer never circles back to allow the deponent to finish that list. So the list of negligent actors, if this problem isn't fixed, becomes a list of one. And it can come up in many other contexts, often in list-style questions calling for list-style answers, such as, tell me every specific trade secret you claim was stolen. Tell me the name of every manager who discriminated against you. With this kind of interruption and absent intervention, the deposition will close with just one negligent actor, one trade secret, one manager named. And so you can see that the examining lawyer is creating some pretty serious evidentiary problems for you because your deponent's best answers aren't complete. Okay, so that's how this problem can surface. Let me talk next about another potential headache, and then we'll move on to solutions and then wrap up. The next logical thing to consider in dealing with interruptions is how the transcript is going to look. Will it capture the fact that your deponents were interrupted? Will it show that? Or will it look like your clients finished their answers? For those of you in a jurisdiction where the law either allows or at least doesn't clearly forbid the use of erratas to make substantive changes, know this. In federal court and virtually every state court, the rules governing errata sheets require you to state the reason for the change and if your deponent's reason for changes is, the lawyer interrupted me, you have to make certain that the transcript clearly shows that the answer being supplemented in the errata was interrupted in the deposition. And let me explain why proving that can be tricky. Now, for those of you who are driving, I suggest you pull over as I begin to talk about court reporter punctuation. I accept no responsibility for sudden onset narcolepsy as we work through this, but this is only going to take about 60 seconds. 
Reporters from agency to agency, state to state, do not consistently use the same punctuation to signal an interrupted sentence. So that's a technical trap door for you. Verbal interruptions may not look like an interruption in print when you get the transcript. To avoid this problem, you can ask the reporter on the record how interrupted answers are denoted on the transcript. And that way, the court will have the reporter's explanation or legend, I call it, such as something in the opening pages that says, interrupted answers are noted using an M dash, an EM dash, something like that. So let's talk just for a moment about how reporters may note interruptions so that you can see why it can cause you trouble later, such as when your judge needs to resolve a dispute about whether your deponent was actually interrupted in giving his or her answer. Many court reporters denote an interrupted, incomplete answer by adding what's called an M dash, E-M dash, which is a long dash after the last word spoken by the deponent before the interruption. Other reporters, though, may use two or three short dashes, dash, 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 to signal an interruption in the answer. Still others may use ellipses, a series of periods after the last word spoken before the interruption, to signal the intentional omission of a word or completed sentence. Now, there are standards for reporters to use to mark interruptions, but they differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and not all reporters follow them anyway. Plus, some reporters use those same punctuation tools for other purposes, such as where the deponent simply trails off on an answer uh, without being interrupted at all. The net result of this issue is that you may see all kinds of punctuation used to note what I call fractures of many kinds in the dialogue, and a judge may not be able to tell from the punctuation that an answer was in fact interrupted, again unless the court reporter has added a legend about punctuation specifically used to signal an interrupted answer, or unless it was painfully obvious from the answer itself, something about the answer being given, that the witness wasn't finished. This complication of ambiguity about whether there was actually an interrupted answer or not surfaced in the Arce case in the show notes, A-R-C-E. Uh, the plaintiff there used an errata to add to various deposition answers, saying in part, I was interrupted and prevented from fin finishing my answers. Court looked at the transcript, though, and didn't see any evidence of interruptions or efforts to prevent her from giving full and complete answers. So we've just got to be mindful about the fact that the reporter may not be clearly signaling in the transcript that your witness's responses were cut off. All right, let's talk about some practical tips for solving this problem. What to do to protect your client's interests when their answers are being or have been interrupted. We've got some good cases in the show notes for you, seven or eight different decisions, I think. But that's pretty much the entire body of law, squarely on interruptions, state or federal. We located several that touched on, discussed, or simply noted that the issue had arisen, but very few with an actual court ruling directly on point, and those few reached polar opposite conclusions, based largely on whether the jurisdiction uh, that the court was in allowed the use of erratas for substantive changes. One, the Gray case from a California state appeals court, reversed a summary judgment ruling in part because the trial judge refused to consider the errata sheet. The appeals court said the deponent there properly used the errata to complete their answers because the transcript, and this makes the point I made just a minute ago, because the transcript clearly indicated he was interrupted multiple times. 
At the other end of the spectrum is the Shankpa case, T-S-C-H-A-N-K-P-A, uh, from a federal trial court in Ohio. The judge there said that in the federal circuit in which the judge resided, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, erratas were not the place to make substantive changes in the testimony, period. And that underscores another point we've made today. Zero cares given in the Sixth Circuit, at least according to the trial judge in Shankpa, about language in the federal rule that contemplates changes in form or substance. So a very bright line drawn there. The trial judge there added, uh, and this is important, that the defending lawyer had the opportunity during the deposition to ask follow-up questions to ensure that the record was complete before it closed and that having failed to do so, there would be no second swing at the ball. So here are some practical solutions, and you have to give thought to this problem because it's not uncommon and it can genuinely harm your client's interests if the accuracy or completeness of your deponent's testimony is materially affected by the interruptions. Point number one. First, as I started out in this episode, you have to know the rules and the appellate courts in your jurisdiction and what they have to say about the permissible scope of changes allowed in erratas. But I don't recommend you rest your fortune solely on the language of the applicable rule because the research tells us that erratas are such a hot button issue for most courts that some appellate courts may override the plain language or meaning of the rules themselves. And you've probably heard or read the line from some of the cases on errata sheets that say depositions are not meant to be take-home exams. So that's the bias against them. Number two, now if you are in a jurisdiction that allows substantive changes to errata sheets, you may decide as a tactical or strategic move to allow some of the interruptions to continue to the extent you feel the errata is a safe place for your witness to park the rest of their answers after the deposition closes. That's obviously a very important tactical decision in front of you if your jurisdiction allows you to tack on additional testimony. In that kind of jurisdiction, do you speak up during the deposition as the interruptions are occurring in an effort to stop it? Or do you allow the examining lawyer to continue interrupting and essentially dig themselves a hole because they won't hear critical pieces of the testimony until well after the deposition is closed? That's obviously a highly fact-specific decision to make. Although again, waiting until later likely involves considerable risk to you, even if your jurisdiction gives you that option. And remember this as well, the original answers don't just go away when an errata is submitted, even if it's accepted. Both the original and the errata are preserved. So the jury can hear both the original answer and the answer with testimony tacked on. And the question you have to consider is, What's that going to look in front of the jury, even if the errata sheet is allowed? All right, now let's take a look at this problem in terms of how we can resolve it without reliance on an errata sheet. Point number one, if you represent the deponent, you're going to address this in your preparations long before the depositions begin. Interruptions are something that I always discuss and practice with deponents because it's such a common occurrence and can have tremendously harmful consequences. I have to do that because my deponents don't have the same appreciation for the difference between testimony and social conversations. In social settings, we allow others in the conversations to interrupt us without even bothering to finish what we were saying. In a social setting, interruptions are virtually the norm, but depositions are different. So I'll sometimes explain in preparing deponents on the issue of interruptions that it may not be obvious to them that the examining lawyer has cut them off on purpose. 
But motives aren't important, whether the interruptions are coming because of a clumsy or awkward way of asking questions, or because of a very clever or aggressive strategy. What matters is what the witness says or doesn't say. An incomplete answer is no answer. Yes, I tell uh, clients and deponents, the questioning lawyer may show some measure of irritation or may say things like, well, then we're going to be here all day, or, but he's not answering the question. But interruptions are not permitted. The examining lawyer has the same option for an obstructive deponent as the deponent does an obstructive examiner. The noticing and examining lawyer can move to strike non-responsive answers and also has the ability to move to terminate or suspend the deposition because it's being conducted in the language of the rule in bad faith or in a harassing manner. So interruptions, no. The touchstone for deposition conduct, as you've heard me say before, is often the language in the rule that says, quote, the examination and cross-examination of a deponent proceed as they would at trial under the rules, end quote. You can imagine how a judge would react to a lawyer who is constantly interrupting witnesses testifying from the stand and a lawyer who responds to the judge's instructions to stop it by saying, well, then we're just going to be here all day. That's not going to happen in a courtroom and it shouldn't happen in a deposition. I tell clients, so it's not disrespectful to insist that the examining lawyer allow you to finish your response. And sometimes I'll say, frankly, if you have any doubt about the importance of a complete question and complete answer, try interrupting the questions a few times and see how quickly the examining lawyers demand that you stop interrupting them. Next point, if the interruptions continue and you feel they're genuinely harming the testimony, your next step is likely going to be to confer with the lawyer about the interruptions and that if they continue, you'll consider terminating or suspending the deposition in order to seek uh, a protective order. That's really the third step toward addressing the problem before a deposition is completed. As we've talked about, the first is preparing your witness before the deposition. The second is your witness's own efforts to finish their answers by uh, insisting that the examiner allow them to do so. The third would be your objections and conferrals. And of course, the fourth and final step would be moving on the record for a protective order and announcing that you're suspending or terminating the deposition as appropriate in order to seek a protective order from the court. Both the federal rules and a supermajority of state rules allow the deponent to terminate or suspend a deposition on the grounds that it's being conducted in bad faith or in a manner that unreasonably annoys, embarrasses, or oppresses the deponent or a party. The federal rule on point is Rule 30D3A, and the language of that rule is important. It says that either the deponent or any party can take this action. So as written, it recognizes that while you may not be representing the deponent whose answers are being interrupted, the interests of your client may nonetheless be harmed from the interruptions and resulting incomplete answers. The point being that the intentional persistent disruption of testimony is a serious offense. It can change the outcome of the case. So you are well within your rights, whether you represent the deponent or simply a party, to terminate or suspend as appropriate the deposition and seek a court order to solve the problem. Another option is to conduct your own follow-up examination to ensure that the additional testimony is captured in the transcript to the extent that you were not otherwise able to resolve the problem through objections and conferral. Well, this option works if you can remember what it was that your client did not have a chance to add 
during examination by the opposing lawyer. But if you're actively defending the deposition, it can be tremendously difficult to capture, to write down every answer that was cut off, and then to conduct an effective and efficient and complete follow-up exam. My view is I shouldn't be forced to conduct an examination of my own client in particular, which can create its own problems, to solve behavior by a noticing lawyer that, to borrow language from the rule, is in bad faith, or even if not in bad faith, is nonetheless of a kind that unreasonably annoys, embarrasses, or oppresses the deponent. And frequent interruptions that materially affect the completeness of the testimony fall squarely into that category. All right, that's it for today. Interesting topic, isn't it? It's probably something that happens at least a few times in almost every deposition, even if by inadvertence. But it is a real problem, motive aside, particularly if it happens multiple times in the same deposition, and especially in, if the interruptions occur while the deponent is giving case-critical answers. All right, well, thank you as always for being such an incredible audience. We love the emails and comments and questions as well that we get directly through our podcast email address, which is depositionpodcast at jimgarrityLaw.com. And of course, our staff and the production team live on the positive evaluations and five-star ratings on the various podcast platforms that you've left. I'm headed to Biscuitville. You have a great week, and we'll talk again soon.